Right now in America, one in 10 people are currently in recovery from drug or alcohol addiction. And of those, some 50 to 90% will relapse at some point in their lives. Because of the power of addiction, many of them will never regain their recovery. Hi, I'm Ron Chapman. I'm an alcoholic with three decades of sustained sobriety. If there's one thing I know about substance abuse recovery, it's that recovery is always a work in progress. Progressive recovery is a commitment to continuously moving forward every day to strengthen one's recovery. Recovery isn't just about learning how to not use. It's about the willingness to tackle the underlying issues that trigger using in the first place. Welcome to Progressive Recovery. People sharing stories from their daily fight for sobriety. Welcome to Progressive Recovery. I'm Ron Chapman, and I'm absolutely delighted to have Rabbi Rami Shapiro with us on Progressive Recovery today, because about a year and a half ago, I came across his book, Recovery the Sacred Art, and it kind of blew me away, Rabbi, or Rami, if you prefer. And subsequently, a study group that I'm involved in, a 12-step study group, uh, decided to use it for what's going to turn out to be about six or eight months worth of study. And it is agitating the hell out of people and provoking some, <laughs> it's provoking some wonderful conversation, some of the richest recovery conversation I can remember from a, from a study group because of what seems to me some real depth and substance in, in your book, uh, Rami. So I'm curious for our listeners, first of all, thank you for agreeing to, to talk with me today. And I'm real curious about how you describe this, this, this book of yours to, to people who are interested so I will do that for you. And then we have to go back to the conversations you're hearing because I want to hear what you're hearing. Yep. That's, you know, interesting to me. Okay. I, I think the answer to your question also answers the question how I came to write the book. So um, I'm in a program and every time I go to meetings, well, you know, this book was written a couple of years ago, but when I would go to meetings, I found myself annoyed that we would sort of dance around things and not really deal with them in any depth. But I felt the steps were inviting us to go deeper. But, and I don't, I don't want to, I mean, it's going to sound terrible, but it, they were almost just sort of, uh, sort of Oprah-esque or maybe <laughs> sort of <laughs> sessions where we sort of bare our soul and it was, yeah. but it didn't go beyond that. And I felt there was a lot more to 12 step than what I was getting in a, in a standard meeting. So I began to explore it on my own. I mean, I read a lot of books for this to write this one book, but my intuition was that 12 steps, the, the 12 step practice is not just for a named addiction that in fact it is and was intended to be, I think this is what Bill W. had in mind, it was intended to be something greater, a spiritual practice for everybody. Mm. Uh, because the fundamental premise of AA, in this case, uh, in, in his case, was that we are powerless over our addiction. Mm -hmm. But my, my sense of it was, I'm actually powerless over my life. And mm. that my addiction was, is, actually a way for me to gain some kind of control now, or, the the, sense of, or the sense of control well right not yeah. not okay. real control there is no real control yeah, yeah. yeah. i was deluding i was deluding myself yeah got it is, 
which is why rock bottom keeps happening over and over again. But, but yeah, yeah, it gives you this sense of control, this illusion of control, which is absurd on its face. But, you know, when you're crazy thinking, you're crazy thinking. So I started to study it more deeply. And in the context of the spiritual teachings of the world's religions, because I really felt that this program stacks up with the best of spiritual practice in, in any religious tradition. I'm not, in, you know, the book itself is not, okay, program is good, 12 steps are good, but now you should move into Buddhism or now you should move into Hinduism. It's that 12 steps are just as good as any other practice. And like with every other practice, you can deepen your understanding of what the steps are by studying other practices. So it's an interfaith look, I guess you'd say, at the 12-step process. But it rests on this idea that this, this is about a radical transformation of your understanding of who you are and, and how life works. Hmm. So, so let's go just there for a second, Rami, because that, that is like one of the major points in here is this whole idea that this, this powerlessness problem, this powerlessness over life itself and our lives more specifically, is much, it's a much bigger conversation, which, by the way, is one of the things that just agitates the hell out of people. Because when you start proposing that, that, that everything they think they have some, some control over, I mean, it, it really strikes deeply on people and it, it agitates them, the prospect that they don't have any control over this. So uh, how do you see that for our listeners, this, this much bigger idea that we're talking about not much control over not much of anything except perhaps what we do with what happens to us, I guess. Yeah, and even there, I'm not 100% sure. Right. I mean, the question you want to start with is, what do I have control over? So start mm-hmm. with the things that are the most intimate, my thoughts and my feelings. Mm-hmm. Do I really control those? My experience, and this is all based on my experience, my experience is I don't. Mm-hmm. My, my thoughts happen, and then I notice that they, you know, I'm, I've already thought the thought that I've thought. Yeah. You know, it's not like I sat down and said, okay, let me think about X. Yeah. It's more I find myself thinking about X. Uh, the same thing with feelings. I don't control them. I don't say, oh, it's 3.33. Now it's a time for a joyous feeling. And now I'm going to feel joyous. It, it doesn't work that way. I'm, my feelings just come and go. My thoughts just come and go. And from where they come and to where they go, I'm not exactly clear. And I don't know if we ever can be clear. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not in control of my thoughts and feelings, then maybe I'm in control of my behavior. And I'm a student of David Reynolds. David Reynolds is this amazing teacher. He's a a PhD therapist from the United States who did his his doctoral program on Japanese therapy. And now he's retired, but he used to spend half the year doing therapy in Japan and half the year doing therapy in the United States. And he has this system he calls constructive living, which is really a powerful way of living. And he says, that you have no control over your thoughts or feelings, but you do have control over your behavior. So I came at this with the understanding, yeah, I can control my behavior. Whether I feel, you know, I mean, it's just, um, I have a craving for for something that, you know, my addictive, I, I'm, in, I'm in OA, so there yeah. goes the anonymity there. So <laughs> I, have, 
I have a craving for food that I shouldn't eat because it's just not healthy for me. It's trigger foods and all of that. Uh, I can't stop the craving, but I don't have to, you know, grab the bag, slice it open and eat everything that's in it. Mm -hmm. That's his thought. That's his, but that, I'm not sure that's true because everything we know about the way the brain works, decisions are made beneath the conscious level. So there's a fraction of a second when I've, I grab that bag of chips, let's say, and rip it open. That is not an egoic choice. It's not like, because that's not a choice I'm going to make. Right. You know, it, it's a choice that, that is made for me on a deep and deeply addicted level. And then I go, oh, crap, I'm sitting here with this open bag of chips. And then you can say, okay, so at that point, you can decide whether to eat them or not. Mm-hmm. But if it's, if this stuff about the brain is true, no, I've already chewing on one before I even realize I've made the decision to chew on it. So do I have control or not? I mean, the issue is this huge philosophical issue of free will. Do we have free will or, we, or do we not have free will? And I think it's an open question. I, I don't really have an answer. My, my personal, what I say if people ask me, and I get asked this all the time, is that you and I have functional free will. In other words, it feels like I have free will. It feels like I could do X or I could do Y and I choose one way or the other. But I know philosophically, scientifically, that may not be the case. Mm-hmm. If that's true, that it's not the case, then am I just a robot? Am I just being moved around by forces beyond my control? I, I think the answer to a great extent is, yeah, right? I'm just being moved around. And then what do you do? So we can talk about then what you do later. Sure. But, but this issue of, of free will and powerlessness, you know, not having that ego power over something. I, I think that's a given in the program. That's why uh, Bill Wilson says in the very beginning, the first thing you have to do is stop playing God. And that's how I understand that statement. God's in control. You're not. And when, when we get to it, when, if you want to talk about that, I, I think that's true, that God's in control. I just didn't think God is what most people think God is. But the salvation, the, way, the reason the program works is because the, the self that wants to be in control, that imagines it's in control, that ultimately realizes it's not in control, is not your truest self. There's something else. And when you're surrendered to that something else, that's something greater, you can call it God if you want. When you're surrendered to that something else, everything changes. Hence the importance of rock bottom, because as you describe it in the book, and as we talk commonly about it in all the recovery programs, is you hit this place where you just, I believe you describe it at one point, you just you just cry out, right? You just you just you just holler, I I ah, right? You're you're right, done. Right. And then something opens up that we would like to say is us, but I think what you're saying is it's some power we simply don't understand. And then things change seemingly magically. Yeah, right. They don't change because I'm changing them. They change because now change is possible. Yeah. When when you've hit, because I'm no longer clinging to control. You know, I, I mean, I've hit rock bottom 
over and over again. You know, yes. what, I, what I thought was rock bottom last week turns out to just be another, another uh, place I'm clinging before I hit the next rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And, and when I'm talking rock bottom, I'm not just talking in terms of addiction. I'm talking in terms of the mess that I encounter when I try to control what's going on. Because the only way I can control my life is if I control you. And you're not controllable. You can't control you. How can I possibly control you? So eventually, I just make enough of a mess that I hit another, you know, rock bottom or, whatever, you know, a wall or whatever you want to call it, yeah. which is a continual reminder that it's, I'm not in control. But what I love, if you can say it this way, what I love about rock bottom is that it is the gift of fierce grace, you know, whatever you, you want to call it, where, where everything you think you know is suddenly stripped away and then you find that you are free, but you're not free in the way you thought you were free. You're not free to be in control. You're free to surrender or to be surrendered to the larger reality of which we're a part, if that makes any sense. I mean, it's a little esoteric. It's that that idea of the surrender or the abandonment of the self or the being crushed or any of those things. Right. But I would say, just to complicate it one more level, you can't do that either. Right. Right. You can't, if you're not in control, you can't surrender yourself. So hence, hence your language a moment ago, um, being surrendered. surrendered. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My next book on this is how to live the surrendered life. What it, what is it like to be surrendered, but you can't do it. And, and I came to this not simply by looking at 12 step, but I I come to this from a variety of different spiritual disciplines. But primarily, I spent a decade in the Zen Buddhist world, Mm -hmm. which is all driven by uh, what the Japanese call, I don't know if my my pronunciation is is so great, but jiriki, which means self-power. Enlightenment is under your control. You can do this. Mm -hmm. And after years and years of practice and not getting anywhere and imagining, of course, that I, there was somewhere to get. That was my other delusion. I, I called my Zen teacher, not my Zen master, but I called my Zen teacher, Tets Uno. And I said, you know, I've been doing what you told me and we used to practice every day and blah, blah, blah. I'm still doing a daily practice. Eh, I'm not getting anything out of this. What's the deal? And he asked me to come and visit in person. It's a long story, but I did that. And we're sitting and talking and he says, well, you're not getting anywhere because A, there's nowhere to get, and B, even if there were, you can't do it. And I said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, then why did you teach me all this self-powered stuff if in fact you are telling me the next phase or stage or step or something is what the Japanese call tariki, which is other power? And his answer was, you can't accept the fact that you are helpless until you've exhausted all the help you can there it is. You can grasp. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not interested in self-help. I'm interested in self-helpless. <laughs> if that's a genre, you know, and you realize that, no, Rami can't do this. And then Rami ultimately becomes shattered. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these rock bottom moments. And then you realize, wait, there's something else that's going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't even say going to do it for me. All the, all the language no longer works. I mean, it's, it's just tough to, to try to put it in English or any language. But you discover the surrendered life simply by being broken uh, through, through the experience of rock bottom. 
I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that because that's one of the things that makes the community for so many so powerful, it seems, Rami, is this idea that we're not, we're not ultimately coming together out of some virtue, out of some principle, out of some creed, some ethic. We arrive at the portal of recovery, broken, smashed, devastated, all those kinds of words that we hear. Um, and, and so we're, we're, we're a community of people who are coming together, hopefully having dropped a whole lot of pretense. Yeah. And, and we get kind of real as a result of that, just like I hear in the words you're using. Yeah. yeah that, that, I, I love the idea we get kind of real because the first exposure I had to a 12-step meeting, uh, what impressed me was the quality of realness, you know, the people were dealing with reality. They weren't dealing with BS. Mm-hmm. Now that, I don't know if that's always true. Many, I don't want to say most, but many of the meetings that I've gone to reality is simply not part of the mix. There's, we're still in a fantasy land and, and, and that has to do with the God of our understanding. Some people understand God as their own personal cosmic concierge who's going to do all this stuff for them Mm -hmm. and i I just don't think that's how it works Mm -hmm. Uh, god is reality with a capital for me god is reality with a capital r and i play god which means i don't deal with reality until rock bottom frees me from that and then for at least a time i've stopped playing god and then i realize in a sense i'm not playing god god is playing me in, in a sense not meaning a negative way but but you know, God is just what's happening in, with, through, as me, and everything else. And there's a liberating thing in that. And, and I think that 12-step is not like, somebody said to me once, that you start, you know, you hit rock bottom, and then you start to climb out one step after the other. But I don't think that's what it is. I think the, the 12 steps is how you live the surrendered life. It's, it's not going to, you're not going to escape from anything. That's why we always say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a recovering drug addict. I'm a recovering food addict, whatever it is. We never say I'm done because you're never done. There's always, as long as you're, as long as you have an ego, Mm -hmm. there's always the temptation to play God. And so you're never done with this. When you're in that surrendered state, then you have the, the steps are how you live. It's not. You don't do the steps to get to the surrendered state. The steps are how you actually live that surrendered state. The surrendered, the surrendered state is a given from, well, it's always there, mm-hmm. but it's, it's the gift of rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Does, does that mean, Rami, that essentially we are, I mean, do we stay surrendered or do we surrender over and over and over and over and over again? Yeah, I think the second, I think we are surrendered over and over and over again. Because as long as I have you know, an egoic self, I'm trying to play God, you know? So, and I, and I get the, the insight, oh yeah, the liberation, the freedom, the, the, (laughs) the gift of being surrendered. And then I forget and I say, oh, this annoys me. Let me fix it. And this annoys me. I don't want to give the impression that being surrendered is passive. Mm -hmm. It simply isn't, um, isn't egoic in that, in that sense of, of, trying to dominate it's it's uh you know there, there's the way one of the ways it was explained to me <clears throat> excuse me one of the ways it was explained to me is like if you're caught in a riptide mm-hmm. you know and you try to swim against the riptide you're going to drown 
Mm-hmm. If you swim parallel to the shore, you're going to be able to work with the way riptide is set and you'll eventually find yourself out of it. But if you, if you try to swim against the, the pull, you're not going to, you're not going to succeed. So you have to, I mean, it sounds very trite, but you have to go with the flow and you don't control the flow. Yeah. But when you surrender to the flow, you discover there's a lot of room for maneuver. But again, then you say, well, that sounds like free will. And I know that's the problem. How much right. choice is involved in that? And, and partly that question because it becomes an abstraction and you know, mm-hmm. does it really matter whether I'm choosing to make amends or I'm simply in, in an amends making place mm-hmm. given the reality that's happening you know, around me. So we can argue that and, and I could argue both sides actually. I mean, that's what Jews do. But um, I don't know if it really matters. Yeah. But I think the, the ultimate and I've said it before, let me just say it one more time. The ultimate gift of this whole process is being surrendered mm-hmm. and not trying to make, not trying to surrender myself. Yeah. So, you know, you, you asked on the front end, you wanted to know more about what is, you know, uh, yeah. poking and agitating people. It, come, it comes right out of this that, I mean, partly you're poking at this, 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 this problem with not facing reality that we're all prone to apparently. Uh, but, and at one point, um, somebody said, said, he's like a rabbi and you know, that's cause he's a rabbi. He like, he, <laughs> he thinks deeply about these things. And so, uh, I, I think part of the agitation comes from people who are, uh, a lot of this is things like, well, we're supposed to keep it simple. Don't look, no, no, that's, it's making it too complicated. Um, when in fact, if you're right, that the steps are in fact a deep, deep opportunity for spiritual growth and development then we should absolutely be diving deep. And I think, I think that's difficult for people. It's uncomfortable. It's disquieting. Um, and yet the Buddhists, I think, would say to not do that is just another form of bypassing, avoiding the real work there is to do there to be surrendered, as you say. Is that, does that make sense based on what you've heard? Yeah, I think that's true. I think the only thing I would add is the Buddhists have this concept called upaya, which means skillful means. So if you're a newbie in the program and you're just trying to get clean or or sober, it's not the time to go, well, look at the difference between step two and step three. Because the wording is very different. What does that imply? And what does that really tell us about spirituality? And is it, if this is truly a deep spiritual transformative path, then the difference between the wording in step two and step three, and we can go into that if you like, is really crucial, but not if you're simply trying to not be an addict. You know, if you're trying to not drink or you're trying to, you know, whatever it is, yeah, then you keep it simple. But what, what I'm talking about, or the group I'm really talking to and who I wrote the book for, I guess, besides myself, is for people who've been in program a long time mm-hmm. and who know that there's more to it and are interested in exploring it. Mm-hmm. Almost like, uh, you know, so Bill Wilson described as a spiritual kindergarten, we're being invited to go past kindergarten, as it were. Yeah, right, right. And kindergarten is absolutely what's necessary when you're in that stage. You don't want to throw a a kindergartner into high school. It doesn't make sense. But, But after you've gone through kindergarten so many times... You know, I've, I, my experience has been that there's, I want more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I think 12 step is on par with any other spiritual discipline, I don't think I'm reading into it. I think there is more than what you get in the kindergarten. Mm. 
Hmm. So as you've observed this and written about it and obviously thought a lot about it, um, I mean, if you're going to give advice based on what you're seeing, Rami, what are, what are like the, what are the blind spots? What are the, what are the things that, that you would caution us to be mindful of or to explore or to dive into or um, any, any tricks, uh, if in fact there are any tricks, that would be useful to people to think about um, how to approach this differently than some of us might commonly do? Yeah, so I don't like giving advice, but I am in the advice giving business. So, okay, <laughs> I will share some things that I think are, are, are helpful at a certain point. Yeah. Uh, number one, I think you have to look for the, I don't know what you want to call it, but the double bind that the steps put us in. So every religious, every spiritual practice has a double bind. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And that's where the breakthrough comes because you realize then, then there's nothing I can do. And then it's done, but you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. So in, in step two, we talk about a power greater than ourselves. In step three, we talk about God as we understand God. So those are not the same things. Most of the time that when I'm in a, in a, a third step, you know, meeting, we're talking about that stuff. People imagine the God that they were told is real when they were six, seven, five, you know, the, the kindergarten God. And that God is most often, regardless of the tradition is, or, or the name you give to it, is most often your concierge and you ask God to do this for you and to do that for you. And, and God, because God controls the universe, God says, you know what? Okay, I'm going to rearrange the entire law of physics so that you can have what you want. And, you know, it's a silly kind of childhood concept, but most of us don't think about God after seven, eight, nine, you know, 10 maybe years old, and we get our idea of, of God is pretty, is, is pretty infantile. But the God of my understanding is just that. It's just the God of my understanding. It doesn't do anything. If, if I say I'm going to you know, willfully, that's not the wording, but if I'm going to turn my life over to the God of my understanding, I'm just turning my life over to myself. It's just part of me pretending there's a non-egoic part of me and I'm giving that part of me control. But it, I'm just kidding myself. Hmm. There is, I think, a higher power. I don't like the word higher. It made sense back in the early part of the 20th century, but to now, now I would say there's a greater power, mm. power greater than ourselves. I don't like higher power. Mm. So, and the difference is higher sounds like it's above me, it's beyond me, it's supernatural. Greater just means it's bigger than me. So I like the Hindu analogy of the ocean and the wave, that God is, is this infinite ocean, and you and I and everything else are waves of that ocean. Mm-hmm. And when I turn my life over to the oceanic, to the power greater than myself, then I just flow naturally. And I don't have to, the, you know, the wave doesn't have to decide which way to go and, and how to go about it. It just does what it does because the wisdom is in the ocean and the wave is simply the ocean in one specific you know, manifestation. Mm-hmm. So th- the question for me is, is how do I... So, you know, and this is, you can't do it, but how do I surrender to the oceanic? Cause that's what I'm going to tell myself I want to do, mm-hmm. but you can't. So then what can you do or what? Yeah. So what can you do? So, you know, on the one hand I'm saying nothing, because if you really do nothing, it's a very Taoist idea, then everything is done, but you can't even 
decide to do nothing because even that is a doing of some sort. Mm-hmm. So it, it's this double bind. But if you're really cracked open by rock bottom, it just happens all by itself. It's a gift. But here's one of the things that I run into all the time. So I work at home. I work about 50 feet at the most from there's 50 feet from my desk where I'm sitting now to my refrigerator Mm -hmm. where, you know, all this great food is. And, and it's not all, it's all great food, but not all of it, but you know, that I should eat. So the other day I'm making lunch and I open uh, the freezer because my wife said there was, there was actually a frozen, she was out of town. There was a frozen dinner that I was going to have actually not for lunch, but for supper. And I opened it up looking at the frozen dinner and I discovered that she had a box of Haagen-Dazs ice cream bars in there. Now, I didn't know she had them. She never mentioned it. Food is not her problem. It's my problem. And I thought, oh my God, look at this. A box of ice cream bars. That has got to be dinner. I mean, you know, what else, what else would I possibly want to eat other than those? And then, of course, as soon as that happens, another part of me goes, no, no, you can't do that. You start, you, first of all, you couldn't eat just one. You'd have to eat at least a second one. And there's only three in the box. So then you might as well finish the box because that's how my mind works when it comes right. to food. You're going to yep. eat it until there's nothing left in the box. And, you know, maybe even try to eat the box, but, you know, probably not. <laughs> so, you know, so then you got these two voices going on in my head. Eat it. Don't eat it. Eat it. Don't eat it. If I allow, if I try to 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 skewer the debate one way or the other, should I eat it or not eat it? I always end up eating it. Mm-hmm. That's my addiction. Mm-hmm. But if I simply, in a, in a, what I do is I ask myself, this is literally what I do. Mm-hmm. I ask myself, who are these guys? <laughs> the eat it, don't eat it guys. You know, oh. Where is that coming from? And as soon as I do that, and this is a process that, that really comes from an Indian saint uh, from the first half of the 20th century, Ramana Maharshi. Mm-hmm. And, and Maharshi always says, you, know, you should ask yourself when you have a thought or a feeling, who's thinking this? Mm-hmm. So the same thing, I've got these two voices going on. You know, where do they come from? Who are these guys? And immediately I realize that they're, they're like, if we're going to stick with the ocean and the wave, they're like the foam on the tip of the wave. And the questioner who's saying, who are these guys? the questioner becomes the ocean. And when I'm in that oceanic state, you know, infinite, large, the the waves don't trouble me. And I don't have to stop the argument. I simply close the the freezer drawer and go do something else. But it's not a choice. It's an effortless action. It's like, this is boring. I don't want to do this. It's like watching a TV show and it's boring. I switch to another station. It's not like I have to debate. Should I switch? Shouldn't I switch? Right. You know, it's just, I flip around. So the situation in the, at the refrigerator, it becomes boring and um, it has no, the, the, the two voices don't have claws in me. Yeah. You know, I, I'm too big at, in that instant. Yeah. Um, so I can just walk away. So if we're looking for a, you know, a thing to do, even though I'm saying you can't do anything, um, (laughs) even if you're looking for a thing to do, ask yourself, who says I want the drink? Who says I don't want the drink? Who says I'm going to do this? I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. Can you realize that the 
person who's asking the question is not those two voices. And when that happens, there is a liberation. At least this is my experience. Mm -hmm. And you can walk away. But then in my case, I walk into another argument with these two voices, you know, later in the day, something else happens. <laughs> and it's not always around food. It's, you know, this person annoys me. Oh, don't be annoyed. Don't be this. So there's always these warring voices going on in my head. And if I can step back, you know, mentally and simply say, who are these guys? I realize they're just, um, oh, there's a word for it, but I can't think of what the word noise is. is mm what I'm going to give, but they're just, they're just like background noise in this much larger reality, which is my truest self. And then I don't have to stop the noise. It's just that it becomes uh, less and less and less of an, a distraction mm -hmm. because I'm just too big. So again, you guys want to carry on this discussion, be my guest. I'm, I'm off to do something else. <laughs> well, you know, we have, uh, we have blasted through that time, but that was a great tip to close on. It's a reflective tip and so forth. I, I want to thank you for the book, Rami. I want to thank you for spending some time with us at Progressive Recovery. Um, it, it, it really has caused some power. The book has caused some powerful conversations that are they really are causing people to look at this deal differently. And that I think is profound. So, so well, thank I, you. I appreciate that, Ron. I appreciate you having me on. And you know, the fact that there's a study group with this book, I've written almost three dozen books and this has been the one that's maybe closest to my heart, but also the one that's got the biggest readership. And there are over 50,000 people. This is a few years ago. I had that number 50,000 people who have bought the book maybe four or five who've read it, but still 50,000 people bought it. Uh, and and, and, I'm, and I'm, it's humbling to think, well, first of all, it's humbling to think that I'm any, you know, that this large number of people dealing with a real problem um, are, are finding the book of interest. That's humbling in and of itself. And the fact that it's still going on, that people are still reading it, and you and I are still having this conversation, and that there's a follow-up book, you know, How to Live More Deeply, This Surrendered Life. Um, you know, I, I don't find, I don't believe I'm writing the books. The, the books are being written through my fingers on the keyboard. And, and that, it's just a, it's just a, a very humbling experience. And I appreciate very much you talking with me. Well, then all we can do is hope that you stay surrendered at your keyboard so the books can write themselves. <laughs> now, now what I have to do is I guess I guess reminding myself of the ice cream in the freezer and <laughs> deal with that again. Eat it, don't eat it. I will. Uh, I will really look forward to the next book and and thanks again and uh, to our listeners. Thank you for listening to Progressive Recovery. Uh, we've been with uh, Rabbi Rami Shapiro. His book. Uh, recovery the sacred art 12 steps as a i've forgotten that part now rami to the 12 steps as spiritual practice um highly recommended rami thanks again thank you thanks for joining us in this episode of progressive recovery which is available at progressive as well as on itunes 